0: This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. Oh, another treat here on Big Talk. A person I've known about for many a moon here in Bloomington. And at last, we've got her on the program. She's a fascinating soul. Her Pinterest page, for example, is filled with topics ranging from gardening to happy things and cooking and baking to home ideas. So you'd think she was a 1950s suburban housewife. Come back to life. And she is indeed a married mom. But her workday is often filled with thoughts and ideas about vibrators, condoms, orgasms, masturbation. Who is this woman? She's Debbie Herbenik, provost professor and director of the Center for Sexual Health Promotion at Indiana University, and she's got a brand new book coming out this fall. Welcome to Big Talk, Debbie.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Now, the book that's going to come out, uh, she says it's in about November. It's called Yes, Your Kid, What Parents Need to Know About Today's Teens and Sex. And boy, isn't that a hot topic these days, especially with certain legislations going on in certain areas of the country. But first, before we get into any of that, this question bugs me. I woke up this morning and it hit me. All the things there are to study in the world, why sex?
1: I think a mix of some happy accidents and curiosity. So when I graduated from undergrad at the University of Maryland, I graduated off-cycle in December Uh and thought, you know, like everybody does when they're finishing college, what to do now? And I was planning to go to graduate school in psychology the following fall, but of course you have some months to, to, you know, to spend time while you're waiting to find out where you're getting in and so on. And during that time, I was dating somebody at the time who had moved out here for a job, and um, and I didn't have a lot of experience with Indiana, but I thought, oh, you know, I'll check it out. And I had come to visit, and it seemed like a nice place. And um, there, um, at the time, John Bancroft was director of the Kinsey Institute. I stumbled across it on the IU website, and he and- Just dumb luck. Just dumb luck. I was looking through the IU website, thinking, what would I do in this, in this town? And- um, You
0: must have been in love.
1: I, I was in love, <laughs> uh, and w- was, past tense. Yes, <laughs> and, of course. Um, and so he was John Bancroft was leading with a postdoc at the time Meredith Reynolds this really interesting study about um it was described as childhood sexual experiences and it was it was all involving adult participants who were thinking back on their childhood and adolescence about about you know their own development and for example when they first started exploring their own bodies and genitals or masturbating or having those childhood play experiences that many kids do like playing doctor or I'll show you mine if you show me yours and it interested me because my undergraduate Time in college was really spent focused on child development. So I, I worked with kids on the autism spectrum. I um, worked on a study involving very young children in foster care. I mean, I was really very focused on child development. Hmm. So from that perspective, that seemed like an interesting job. It had nothing to do with the sex part. It was really the child part. And I I came out and I interviewed with John Bancroft and was fortunate to get you know this part time research assistant job. And once I was there and and working as a research assistant with him, I realized that so much about what I knew about sex was wrong, and that many of the people who are working to understand facts about sexuality and bodies and sex education were here at Indiana University, all across campus and different schools, and that this was a good thing to learn about. Hmm. Um, so I, I had to figure it out. It took me a couple years to figure out going down the path of child development or human sexuality. But I realized that I had so just so much curiosity about this topic and that if I wanted to choose a career where sort of my questions would never end, that that would be a good choice for me. And I also knew I always wanted to have kids. So I thought, well, I'll still get some experience with child development, but huh. just probably not as much professionally. So that's that's where I went. So I often say that, you know, I came for the love and stayed for the sex when it came to Bloomington, um, but it's it's been a great career.
0: You're known pretty much around the world. Here's your Amazon author bio, by the way, an award-winning sexuality educator and researcher and a widely read sex columnist. She's appeared on numerous television shows and her work has been highlighted in thousands of newspaper and magazine articles. Your Wikipedia page says you're one of the leading experts on the study of sexual behavior in the United States. Now, you said lots that you knew was wrong. Mm -hmm. You think you got everything down now?
1: Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, we're still learning. And, you know, sex changes. It's not, uh, you know, it's not something that just exists at one point of time and never evolves, it evolves all the time. Um, sex looks different um, for different people around the world and shaped by religion and culture and education and issues of gender and power. I mean, there's there are so many influences on sexual behavior and sexual attitudes. So we don't have everything down, and that's why we have to keep studying it as it evolves. And as our ability to look at it and measure it differently evolves too as scientists.
0: Now, one of the things that you – think about, research, study, get to know about, is something called genital self-image. What does that mean?
1: Genital self-image is a term that generally refers to how people feel about their genitals. It's a bit like body image, but focused on the genitals.
0: I didn't even know I felt anything about my genitals.
1: Not everybody necessarily has salient feelings about it. And we, we make space there. for that too. Yeah. For some people, they're just there. They're yeah. just kind of a, like your elbow. You may not think that much about. Yeah. Um, but for quite a lot of people, there is some emotional weight around their genitals and um, how they feel about their genitals may keep them from dating, from flirting with other people. If they have a lot of shame around their genitals, either because of how they look or their genital size or shape, Uh Um, or if they have a lot of religious or cultural baggage around genitals being a source of shame and Uh sinfulness. So for, for many different reasons, people have very positive feelings about their genitals or very negative feelings about their genitals or anywhere in between. And um, for my dissertation, so early in my career, that's that was an area that I wanted to focus on, Hmm. and that stemmed from being in a um, working on a research study with Dennis Fortenberry up at the IU School of Medicine, and being in clinics and interviewing adolescent and young adult um, women. And it was fascinating because we would ask them all sorts of questions about their sexual behaviors and their sexual partners. That study was focused quite a bit on sexually transmitted infections. So we had questions that asked um, specific, uh, about specific kinds of sexual behaviors. And I was a master's student at the time, or maybe just finished my master's thinking about my PhD. And so what happened was I was interviewing a young woman one day. And I had asked her about the number of sexual partners she had had um, for intercourse. And that was a standard part of the survey. And she told me whatever, you know, whatever number was, one, two, three, something like that. And then later on in the interview, she happened to mention somebody else who she hadn't mentioned a bit earlier. And I said, well, you know, what about this person? You didn't mention them earlier. And she said, oh, it, you know, that doesn't really count. You know, we don't, we don't really talk anymore. It was very quick. wasn't good. We don't talk anymore. So it was interesting the way she thought about that. And then she also had said something um, curious to me, which was that even though she had had intercourse with her partner and done various other kinds of sexual behaviors, she hadn't touched his penis. And, you know, she had said, you know, we had a question about, you know, stimulating a partner's uh, genitals with your hand. And it was fine. Right, It doesn't matter to me what she does or not. I'm just there to to ask the questions. But what was interesting to me was the disgust that she reacted to with that question. She said, "You know, sir, sort ah, of, oh, no, I would, you know, never touch that." I said, and that was curious. And I said, "Okay, well, you know, what what is that?" And I said, "Why why wouldn't you want to, you know, touch his penis?" And she said, "Well, I don't know where that's been." <laughs> and, I, and I and I sort of said, "Well." You know, you just shared with me that it had been in your vagina and without a condom. You know, so that was wow. sort of so, so sort of interesting to me. And she said, Yeah, but that's different. And I asked why, and she said, Well, because my hands are clean. And, you know, what that told me was she thought about her vagina as dirty. She thought about penises as dirty. So if they were both dirty, right, they could go together. She didn't even worry about condoms but she wouldn't have put her clean hands on a penis that she considered dirty. Wow. So it just kind of fascinated me to think that the way that you think about your own genitals or your partner's genitals can affect your safety, right, using condoms or the sexual behaviors you engage in. So, yeah, I just sort of launched a line of research off of that really fascinating question with that young woman.
0: So it's more than anatomy. It's more than physiology. We are talking about inside the brain, we're talking psychology. Absolutely. Well, it is shocking to learn what people think about sex and their own bodies. Here's an interesting thing. In, in the last few years, tell me if I'm wrong or not. I think there's been a lot of information that has come out about the clitoris. We're learning that it's much more than we thought it was. I've seen some diagrams and pictures, and I go, "Oh, that's a that's a big thing." We don't even know what the heck some of the equipment is.
1: The clitoris is interesting. So we we have known, I think, for longer than um, some of the new the recent news would suggest. Ah. We actually have known that it's pretty big uh-huh. um, in scientific circles. Yeah, but I don't think that information has gotten out to the general public. As much as it should, and so when I wrote my first book, because it feels good, I talked a little bit about that and how, you know, there are different feminist scientists, including Helen O'Connell in Australia, who's this anatomy specialist, and she would, you know, really do these fasting investigations of cadavers and, and really look at the clitoris and and also look at its close proximity to the vagina and the urethra and how they're all kind of interconnected. Yeah, um, Betty Dodson, who is a famous sex educator, she passed away a few years ago. But when she was still alive, she had done a really nice um, video with drawings about the clitoris and the vulva to help educate others. So I think um, some of the newer media, like on YouTube and, and so on, have helped. I had a graduate student who did an interesting TikTok a few years ago oh. about the vulva and clitoris, and it was widely viewed. And so, um, you know, there have been clitorisy campaigns, some folks have called them, starting maybe a decade ago. So I do think there's um, a lot more information getting out there. But that said, we still don't know everything about it and I was just at a great meeting a scientific meeting uh, a week or so ago in Montreal where a colleague shared some fascinating data about how you know how that she's been learning some new things about blood flow in the clitoris and how it's the bulbs that really seem to fill up with um, with blood when when you feel aroused and so on so it's we're, we're still learning more all the time
0: let's go back 30 years ago mm-hmm. A 1993 episode of Seinfeld. I'm going to quote what Jerry told George about that neck of the woods. Okay. You know, nobody knows what to do. You just close your eyes and you hope for the best. I really think they're happy if you just make an effort. That was 30 years ago. Basically, he's saying, I don't know what the hell I'm doing down there. Has it changed?
1: Yes and no, right? There's a lot more information out there on the internet than 30, you know. Thirty years ago, we didn't really have the internet like we do now, sure. and but it's really difficult for young people or people of any age to make sense of quality information and what is trustworthy. Uh-huh. So you know, having vast amounts of information isn't necessarily helpful if a lot of it is inaccurate. Sure. So, and, and of course, sex education is being gutted around the country, and that doesn't help. But also our sex education hasn't historically addressed pleasure, even though pleasure is the primary reason people have sex. Right. And so it's it, – yeah, I, I don't think it's gotten that much better in terms of people really understanding joys and pleasures around sexuality and and what people want and how to – Communicate openly about it because, of course, there is no one technique, right, that works for oral sex or intercourse or anything.
0: It's a discovery. It's
1: a discovery and a conversation and an exploration and, and looking for feedback and asking people how thing, how they things feel for them. Um, and if you're not comfortable talking about sex or your partner's not – then you're really, you have some pretty significant barriers to having a pleasurable sex life.
0: Our guest this week is Debbie Herbenik. Uh, She's a professor over at Indiana University. She's the director of the Center for Sexual Health Promotion. She's a sex researcher known around the nation, known around the world for the work she does. And you know, Debbie, I'm going to take you back even further in time than 30 years ago. I'm going to go back more than 50 years ago when I was about 14 years old and I discovered three books and they were sex books but I'm not talking pornography or anything like that I'm going to name them to you tell me if you if you recognize these the sensuous woman by an author who at that time she called herself just J, the letter j she couldn't even you know say here's who I am because who who knows what the heck would have been thought how about this everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask by david rubin that was the first one that i discovered and it, he talked about the clitoris and i go oh well that's interesting and it wasn't you know sure i was a normal kid i was aroused by everything the aunt Jemima box aroused me for god's sakes but i read those books because they were fascinating, and I wanted to know, and I wanted to learn. It was almost scientific for me i 'll tell you one more of those titles, "The Joy of Sex" mm-hmm. by alex comfort that 's way back, and those were revolutionary books
1: they were, and you know you 're not the only child who learned that way, all right, or child or teen. Um, you know Dr. Ruth has told stories going back even decades earlier than that about how she she saw where her parents kept her sex books, and I think they were, if I recall correctly, maybe on top of a cabinet or something on top of a, a dresser. And she would, you know, when they weren't around, get a chair and stand up to reach and and get them. And she was, you know, she was very interested. So, So young people are curious. It's a world that is not theirs yet, but they have some sense that one day that's a world that they'll step into. So of course they want to they want to learn about it, and those were um, very instrumental books. I mean, even when I was growing up, I remember one of my friends telling me that the way he had learned about sex was his parents um, gave him their copy of the Joy of Sex and just oh. said, you know, look at it, and if you've got questions, come ask us. Um, and that was, I think, really helpful for him to learn about sexuality.
0: It is a topic that to this day, we're in the year 2023, and people still are a little bit jittery. For instance, I think there are still a lot of parents out there who are afraid or loathe to talk about sex with their kids. In this day and age, why do you think?
1: I mean, it's it's true, and it's really difficult. and for all kinds of reasons. And so that, you know, that was the driving there are a couple driving forces behind me writing a book for parents. Yes, your kid.
0: it is. yes, your kid. What Parents Need to Know About Today's Teens and Sex. And that'll be coming out in November, but you can pre-order it already. How how can they do that? It's,
1: yeah, at all the, you know, locally we've got Morgan Stearns where you can pre-order it from. Um, it's also on all the websites where you normally buy books, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, you know, all of them, Bookshop. So it's available for pre-order. And um, the first few chapters are about becoming what we call, in sex education, an askable parent, which is really just somebody who – You know, it's projecting comfort and confidence and openness, being somebody that your kids can come to when they have questions. Um, It walks parents through, you know, the advice we have in the field of sex. I'm both a sex educator and a sex researcher. Uh And um, so I have had specific training in how you talk to different groups of people. Um, And so it's really important, you know, just at young ages um, to share with kids basic information about their bodies. Sometimes parents don't talk with their kids about sex or bodies or puberty because they never had those conversations when they were growing up and if they don't know really and have first experience firsthand experience on how to do that, it can be really nerve-wracking for uh-huh. some parents. Some parents are worried at different ages that if they educate their kids, that their kids are going to be so interested in sex that they just go out and start doing it. And that has never been shown to be true, right? The studies overwhelmingly show that you're really just creating more informed kids or teens. You're not creating teens who are just eager to go do it all.
0: If we don't talk about it, it ain't going to happen.
1: That's right. That Because, you know, some people bury their head in the sand. But, you know, most often what I hear, and especially as a parent myself, is I you know I get a lot of questions from my friends, um, from people who have read my books, from you know childhood friends, from people at birthday you and know, other parents at birthday parties, and you know um, sports games and so on. Um, but what I hear so often, and I understand this as a parent, is parents often say, "I thought I had a few more years." Before this situation would come up, or Mm -hmm. my kid would ask that, so even parents who actually are quite open about issues and and they feel like, oh sure, I'm going to be the kind of parent who talks about these things, you you just don't know when they're going to come up for your child, right? um, Or your child's friends, or something that will happen in school, and so you know it's important for parents, I think, to have the support of those around them um in talking about these topics, you know, again, the book itself so that it can walk you through these. But also what's really missing is the support of our communities mm. in terms of the gutting of sex education, because parents can't do it all alone. You know, we, we do need more support for sex education.
0: Well, let's talk about some of your titles that you've already put out. Uh, the new one, again, is Yes, Your Kid, What Parents Need to Know About Today's Teens and Sex, your previous books, Because It Feels Good, A Woman's Guide to Sexual Pleasure and Satisfaction. This one, I love this title. Read My Lips, A Complete Guide to the Vagina and the Vulva. Great in Bed, Sex Made Easy, and The Corgasm Workout. The new book, as I say, is Yes, Your Kid. It's coming out and it's going to help Parents know what the heck to think and to say about their kids' sexuality. Something we've known for a long time, that parents aren't totally at ease with that kind of topic uh, very often.
1: Yeah, they're not at ease, but parents today are in in a really tricky spot because sex has changed drastically. It just has. And so, you know, parents today who are raising tweens and teens and even young adults, college student age. Most parents have no idea how sex has changed, and this has been a big focal area of my research for the past five or six years. So this was probably the number one reason I wanted to write this book, was because I kept thinking, how are we going to get this information you know, to, to young people? And of course, the schools aren't going to do it. At many schools, you can't even put a condom on a banana these days to teach right. about safer sex. And so the changes that I think are incredibly important for parents to know about in addition, and the book has a whole chapter on sex and technology, like sexting and, and phone use and internet access. Has a whole chapter on talking with kids por- about pornography, which is so widely accessible. But the, right there in the home, right there, you know, there many kids are even accessing pornography from their schools because they've got their devices yeah. with them, and sometimes yeah. from school computers that don't have adequate filters. Yeah. But the biggest area of my research that feels incredibly important for me to share with parents is that we've seen. What we call a rise of rough sex or a mainstreaming of rough sex, Uh and so these are even in adolescence. um, Again, if yeah, and they're all kind of connected, right? Because if kids get access to pornography, and most tweens and teens do get access at some point, Yep. then what they see in pornography today, which is different from pornography 20 years ago, is that most mainstream pornography, like free pornography, which is the kind that young people can see, they don't, they can't pay for subscriptions right. to better quality stuff perhaps. So what they see is a very rough kinds of sex. So hitting in the face, hitting in the genitals, choking or strangulation, a lot of name calling of some pretty, um, you know, Condescending names sure. that can really be bothersome for for some people who don't you know uh, want that to happen to them didn't know it was going to happen, um, and, and they're taking
0: this almost as sex manuals. Well,
1: they are because you know that is what they are seeing. So for you know boys on average see pornography at age eleven now. Yeah. and and for, and that's an average age, meaning quite a few are seeing it at a eight, nine, ten, right? and and then others in their early teens. And so and for girls, it's only a little bit older than that. Um, I think around 14. So and we're also seeing young people start to have partnered sex a little bit later than they used to, which can be good for things like sexually transmitted infections and pregnancy risk. But what we are seeing is that in other words, young people may be watching pornography for three to eight years regularly in some cases, before they ever have a partnered sexual interaction. So the script that they get is one of being really rough with one another. And although it's it feels fine to some people, it's very hurtful to other people. So I hear very often about sexual assault reports around these issues, and we just need to talk about it.
0: And it seems to me that a lot of this rough sex and naming and and slapping and things on that order uh, reinforces the notion that this sex stuff is bad stuff.
1: Yeah, it's you know it's scary to some young people. Yeah. Um, you know, the psychologist Lisa Damore, who's written some wonderful books about adolescence. They're not sex books; they're just developmental adolescent books. They're wonderful. But, you know, she she spoke about in one of her podcasts about really these, these traumatic experiences some young children she's seen um, in her practice have experienced when they have, you know, maybe been shown pornography on a device by, you know, an older cousin or sibling of a friend that they're at a play date for. So it's hard for kids to make sense of what they see. Um, If they've just heard about sex and not gotten good sex talks from family or school, they may think that's just what sex is like, and that may scare them, understandably.
0: Well, Debbie Herbenik is a world-renowned sex researcher and educator. She's been here at the Kinsey Institute and Indiana University. She's a provost professor here. She's the, the director of the Center for Sexual Health Promotion and the brand new book coming out in November, and you can pre-order it now, for gosh sakes, online and at your bookstore, Yes, Your Kid, What Parents Need to Know About Today's Teens and Sex. And it just it just kills me, Debbie, that we still need to go over this kind of stuff. I remember this kind of stuff being a big thing when I was 14 years old, 50 years ago and more. But yet we still need to say It's okay.
1: Yeah, it's okay to be curious about sex. It's okay to learn about sex. It's a wonderful career to study sex. Um, I really do enjoy my work. And I'm grateful at the IU School of Public Health to have so much support for looking at um sexuality as a sexual health and public health issue.
0: Nothing salacious about this. It is science.
1: It is science and you know for me a driving motivation is to understand the sexual behaviors that people are engaging in to give people enough fact-based information that they can make the choices that are right for them. To help people in the case of rough sex we're doing quite a bit of research that Looks at potential health consequences of engaging in certain rough sex practices, because many people haven't really thought about the health consequences of some of them. Not all of them have, you know, particular um, health consequences, but some do, like choking, which is a form of strangulation. Uh huh. Um, you know, deprives of oxygen. But it's it's becoming so incredibly common, and it's not just shown in pornography. It's shown in just mainstream TV shows that yeah. that young people watch and talked about in some of the popular music so you know the thing is people are talking about it
0: listen and talk communication that's the key debbie Herbennick, thanks for being on big talk
1: thanks for having me